Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Another edition of Nightlight. We're back to our normal Tuesday night schedule, but that doesn't mean we're normal. Barbara's doing a show tomorrow, so we'll return to being abnormal. We have another biblically themed show tonight. Um, the close grouping of biblical topics uh, wasn't part of the master plan, uh, but we'll take the credit for it if you want to give it to us. But maybe during all the lockdowns, um, more authors have turned to writing about biblical mysteries. There just really seems to be a lot of um, people researching the Bible right now. Um, and we'll be talking tonight about the upcoming AAPS conference with a couple of their presenters. Uh, the conference will be held October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Island Resort in Harris, Michigan. You can learn more the AAPS conference by going to the website aapscopper.com. Um, you know, kind of like you know, my other co-host tonight is going to be a speaker. So uh, we have... Uh, Two acclaimed presenters, uh, fan, you know, one of Nightlight's fan favorites is Mr. Brenda, Brenda's husband, or you, know, you can also call him like my husband-in-law. It's kind of like 
George Harrison and Eric Clapton. Uh, he also goes by the name of Rick Osmond. Um, he'll, he'll be helping out um, once he uh, has a moment to get away from uh, work, but he, he should be here shortly. And you also know Rick as being the author of Graze the Golden Bear, an advisor to Ancient American Magazine, and one of the other presenters is Mike Kolakuri, and he his topic conference and you know we'll be kind of paraphrasing it tonight is. Um, Ancient Cataclysms, and Mike is the author of Restarting Genesis. Hi, Mike. How, how are you? I am doing well. Glad to be with you. All right. Great. Glad, glad you're here. You know, like I said, uh, Rick uh, got called away at the last minute. Uh, he should be joining us shortly but um yeah it's been really nice working with uh judy johnson and the other aaps people over the last gee, I don't know, four or five years um helping to draw attention to what you know they're calling for okay they're yeah, Rick's here. Uh, so, um, and it's really nice ha- having you. And I just got a message that Rick's here. Okay, so, uh, Rick, how are you? I am well. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing fine. Uh, Mike's here. Uh, Barbara's uh, making sure we stay on the air. But um, Rick, you have been uh, going to Harris, Michigan for years. Um, You're frequently a presenter. Um, For the listeners, could could you describe like the venue, you know, the people, uh, you know, what's in the area to see if you're going to be up you know, have, have a chance to uh, uh, get out and visit, uh, you know, some local sites uh, in between speakers um, or a- after the uh, conference. Um, you know, there's, yeah, what's there, there to see? The it, venue, yeah, the venue is a hotel slash casino owned and operated by the Potawatomi tribe of Harris, Michigan. Um Okay. And it is one nice place. Just let me start there. Um, they have a, a pool and a um, uh, uh, what do they call it a, a, a hot tub, and it's a saltwater bath, not a uh, not, not a chlorine bath. I can't do chlorine, so. I really enjoy that aspect of it after the conference. Uh, there are plenty of things to see in the hotel itself that are very interesting. Um, but the the way the conference is operated is also 
convenient to do what you said, uh, go someplace in between uh, different presentations and whatnot. And the dinner is very close by to the actual conference room. And I don't know how to better describe it, but it's convenient. It's uh, People are very pleasant, both the hotel employees and, of course, everybody involved in AAPS. And, yes, I have been cool. going there for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, just, uh, you know, this year's speaker lineup looks very interesting. Uh, you know, we'll have to hear a little bit about uh, your DeSoto and pigs, which sounds – Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, we'll – We'll get to that. It's one of those uh, yeah. where history doesn't quite add up. Okay. You, you know, well, you know, what, two weeks, uh, we'll be hearing a little bit about DeSoto's uh, voyage and traipsing across the southeastern, or what would become the southeastern colonies. So, um well, when you talk about that later tonight, you, you know, you'll be laying down some information from Richard Thornton's presentation in a couple of weeks. So, uh, you got, uh, you know, your good friend Lee Pennington is going to be there, Wayne May, of yep. course, Mike, and yep. you know, Scott Walter, Lon Krieger. All good And yeah, uh, I I don't know of any changes to the actual lineup. You'd have to ask Judy about that one. But um, as far as the schedule, I don't know exactly when everybody's speaking yet. But I I got to get with and make some arrangements for mine. Okay. Well, if uh, people people are interested it you know the website is aapscopper.com okay um let's could i could i slip a word in about this uh, the uh, sure. i think the thing that really makes this conference is the people that assemble there for for your listeners who may or may not be familiar with the names that you've mentioned here the conference is attended by a a lot of people that have spent a lot of time studying on a lot of different things pertaining to our history, and we learn a lot. Whether you're a presenter or an attendee, you will come away having learned a great deal. It's a wonderful weekend, and if somebody has an open mind and is curious, I recommend it highly. Okay. I couldn't agree Kurt. more. Okay. So, um Mike, let's get started you know, talking a little bit about these uh, ancient disasters. Um, <laughs> I, I just like stuff like that. Um, you know, you, a lot of your information is drawn from your uh very thought-provoking uh, restarting Genesis. So early on in the book, you, know, you do talk about 
your mindset, you know, high school and college age, it, you know, you're taking a more <laughs> literal look at the Bible. And I think as you present your information, you are going to let us know that we are looking at the information not in the same vein as the ancient Hebrews when they were writing the book or you know the or writing the Bible. So uh give us a little bit of background on your about uh, me? Yeah, your mindset there and you know trying to read the Bible well, I have maybe a little bit of an unusual background. I am a Christian, and, and my book is a Christian book. But I majored in anthropology mm-hmm. in college, and I took quite a lot of geology, and I've never lost interest in those fields. The the conference we're, we're going to be attending is interested in the historical or archaeological or, or geological aspects of this cataclysm. And I'm glad when you brought it up early on here, that you put it in the plural, cataclysms. A lot of times we look at this thing and tie one hand behind our back because this is a very complex subject. We talk about the cataclysm of 9,700 B.C., and it was real, and it was major, and it was disastrous, but... There was an awful lot going on in the several thousand years leading up to that, and there's a great deal of evidence out there uh, that something happened, but it's sometimes difficult to put it together and make one single story out of it. And what I'm going to be hoping to do at this conference is streamline things a little bit. Um, when researchers look at this event, they are really dumbfounded in many cases because it's such a complex event and series of events that it's hard to make sense out of it. And I think what happens is it doesn't get the attention that it deserves because there's so many unanswered questions. Um, archaeology by itself, under the best of circumstances, is dealing with fragmentary information. When we go back into prehistory, before writing was introduced, at the time that this event happened, everything was communicated orally. It becomes oral tradition or mythology. And so we have an even more fragmented amount of information with which to deal. And and it's been difficult for people uh, to come up with answers or in some cases, even to know what the questions are. I'm sorry, did I uh, get off on a tangent there that, <laughs> that I shouldn't have? No, uh, no I, I was <clears throat> going to say, um, you know, one important piece of information you do bring up is uh, you know, just, you know, just to read from your book, uh, the Bible was written using covenant relationships throughout and also contains several literary devices all of which 
were understood by the ancient Hebrews and none of which were adequately understood by me, (laughs) meaning you. Okay. And they also talk about the genealogies given in early Genesis are frequently used to construct a literal timeline for the physical creation. Um, but I, you know, I think as we keep talking tonight, you know, you're going to ex- explain that uh, we don't understand those literary devices. Maybe uh, we don't understand how time was kept. You know, Noah was. 600 years old. Um, There's there's so many facets to these questions that we could be here three or four days trying to sort it all out. But in the talk that I'll be giving in Harris, Michigan, I'll be dealing with archaeological and geological issues. My book in chapter four deals with those that's on the flood in the ark. The previous mm-hmm. uh, chapters are on other issues, uh, more of, of, of a spiritual nature. I'd be glad to discuss those uh, tonight, uh, but I don't want to get outside the parameters of what you had set for the topic. Uh, this, the catechism oh, of yeah, I don't worry. That, yeah, we've had lots of shit. Yeah. And, Probably Rick's like one of the best examples is we have a topic and I you know just throw th- throw the talking points away and we'll just let Rick, Rick talk for two hours. Let it, let it roll. It, 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 it's been known to happen. Yeah. Okay. I so could, uh, I do have a question for you though. Uh, did you at any time? Check out what Emmanuel Belikowski said about these cataclysms. Oh my! <laughs> when I uh, was a young man, uh, I was initially an atheist, and when I I became a Christian fifty years ago, I started reading everything I could read on on. I'm going to use the word flood here. I'm, uh, and many other issues, including him and and many others. Um, There are so many voices out there, and some of them make sense and some don't. I guess what I would like to frame, since we've kind of got on a biblical leg of this thing a little bit, is to explain why the Bible doesn't seem to line up well with history. Um. The Bible was written for a specific purpose, and that is to set a framework for the relationship of man with God. Archaeology is for the purpose of decoding the physical remnants of our our past, and geology has a similar purpose to undercover the physical aspect, the geological portion of our past. These aren't quite the same purposes. The, The Bible is written for spiritual issues and the and other aspects, archaeology and geology and history, are to come up with historical issues. When the, the Bible gives its information 
to us is a spiritual teaching. And it uses a method of teaching which to you, it, it, it will take something that happened in the natural world, something in history, and use it to make a spiritual point. At the same time that it does that, the biblical writers will take the attitude that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can measure up in importance to the spiritual leg of the story. So when it uses something in a natural world to tell about something in a spiritual world, it's making an inadequate comparison. So what the Bible will do is employ a literary device called hyperbole to make a better match out of it. It will it will upsize whatever was being t- talked about in the natural world so that it tries to make a better match to the spiritual issue being taught. So when you read it, you're going to you're going to see things that say that doesn't make sense, that could never have happened. And it's it's because you're trying to glean accurate information on the historical leg, whereas the Bible is giving accurate information about the spiritual leg. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, Mike, part of what you were just talking about is, uh, you know, like the geology and what happened. It, is also part of your observations by going to uh, the uh, Giza Plateau and seeing the pyramids. I have been there, yes. You you were also at Gobekli Tepe. I have been there. Yeah, so, you know, you were able to observe some of the geology. Uh, some of these places are actually bringing together, you know, like the spiritual and historical, you know, uh, what happened. So, uh, mm-hmm. and, and as well as your uh, vacation at the Ark in uh, Williamsburg. Kentucky. I have been there. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been there as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you you are bringing a lot of information to connect what can yeah, be. Yeah. You know, so. It, I, but, I um, think that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no! I I, I was. Uh, I'm just going to uh, ramble more, but you know, I think uh, that's all. Listeners I would. Ramble. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think read, that, listeners would hmm? prefer to hear you. Okay. Well, um, when when uh, I look at what has taken place in our history, what I see is a little bit of reluctance on the part of researchers to take this cataclysmic event seriously. And there's good reason for it. So much of what happens, either on the archaeological leg of it or on the geological leg, 
seems a little outside of our wheelhouse. We, we live in a fairly peaceful time, geologically speaking, today, and we don't see the kinds of things happening that had to have happened for this cataclysm to take place. When I was in college, there was a, a dispute between what we called independent inventionists and, and uh, uh, people that believed in, in dispersion, that, that mankind had overspread the globe, even across oceans, and traded information with one another. The independent inventionists, led by a guy by the name of Alice Alex Herlicka, uh, he was a very forceful man, and he believed that given similar circumstances economically in various ways, that similar inventions would result. And he, he came up with that logic because he believed that oceans were impassable. That, that battle was kind of still raging a little bit while I was in college. Since that time, the independent inventionists have kind of faded by the wayside and, and the diffusionists have taken control. Today, when people look at things that they see in the world, they, they're not bothered when there are similarities horizontally. When, let me give you an example. If you were to look at the Moai on Easter Island and see the way the arms of those are carved kind of nightly, nice and neatly into their sides, and then you were to look at Gobekli Tepe and see on those uprights similar arms, nobody's bothered by that. They, they can tell that there's a similarity there, and to them that means that there was some sort of contact. It doesn't necessarily mean that anybody from Easter Island knew, even knew that anybody from Gobekli Tepe even existed. But culturally, there was some sort of contact, even if it was only in the artistic style of the way they carved those arms. There was a, a horizontal contact that, that's, that's accepted. Vertically is another matter. Right. And, people, well, and chronologically, there's also a, a high uh, co what would you say, uh, a high incidence of coincidence that everybody did the same thing about the same time. One exception is North America and South America did not, did not have archery, according to the archaeologists, until about 700 A.D. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, that's a very interesting one to me. Yeah, but, um, what I'm, I'm thinking is a lot of what has taken place historically has had an effect in on more recent time periods. The older cultures that existed, the antediluvian cultures that uh, existed, were major forces. And, and what they developed uh, economically, artistically, uh, as far as construction methods, they all cascaded down through time into much more recent time periods. But because there's so many outsized questions about this event itself, I don't think people try to make the connection through time that the way we we can and should. I, I think that the, the past contains very great clues to more recent time periods, and that's where our research really needs to lie. And if we 
if we are hesitant, that the uh, the the real ancient people, the pre-cataclysmic people, could do certain things, then we're we're a little reluctant to go forward. I don't think we need to be able to, to prove. Uh, uh, different authors have said the antediluvians could fly, or that, uh, that obviously could correct uh, uh, con- construct major megalithic. Nobody knows how they did it. There's some talk that they could communicate telepathically. All of that's outside of our wheelhouse. We can't imagine how that ever could happen. And I I think we don't need to understand those things in order to get a better glimpse of what the ancients have for us in the past that we can use in deciphering things in more recent times. Does that seem too obtuse, or does that make sense? (laughs) No, it's perfect, actually. my my favorite example has been the center of most of my research, which is how they communicated over distance without, you know, the modern technology, quote unquote, that we use. Um, yeah. But they did. Mm-hmm. They did, yeah. <laughs> and I know how they did it two thousand years ago. I don't know how they did it exactly ten thousand years ago, but I bet there were some similarities. Hmm. I I think that. Uh, when we can see that they clearly did things for the moment, at least if we can just go with that, okay, I don't understand it, but they did it. Let's see how it affects other things. I think we can advance understanding of our history a little better. If we try to figure yeah. out whether they could fly or not, we may never figure that out. You know, yeah. the answer and I'm may not be right here. Whether they could fly. But I, I do care that we can actually learn a few things, maybe for our yes. own benefit. Exactly. Well, exactly. and with the you know, relatively recent discovery and acknowledgement by the mainstream academics that there, there were the Hobbit people in southeastern Asia and you know Rick you write about the uh, extensive graveyard of little people in White County kind of like near Barbara's house oh in in Tennessee well yeah yeah, it's not very far from Barbara's place uh, yeah, that being yeah, nice yeah, we need, yeah. Uh, the according to Blog all the accounts I've been able to look up, there were some four thousand four hundred of these miniature people buried standing position in basically post holes in this graveyard. And that uh all of the <clears throat> academic types and most of the Smithsonian said, Oh well they're all children. But that there's a follow-on to that story where Barry Fell and a couple other folks who had some of the right credentials and had a lot number or a location number went and looked and said, no, these, these were most of these were men of age 40 to 50 years. He based mm-hmm. that on arthritis, uh, scar tissue on bones, bad teeth, all those things that we would normally look to gauge age. So, yeah, yeah well, little yeah, but you know, it, 
if they are if the hobbit people and people living in Tennessee had the same ancestors and you know they're basically the same like race of people you know they're all uh, somehow genetically the same birthplace and been transported to Tennessee or or vice versa but that they were transported transported by versa then that would have been in excess of 21,000 years ago but by the way you can't walk your ticket anyway yeah so at some point they're you know sailing so you know they uh you know, they have naval engineering, and that kind of ties in with some of Mike's other examples of big boats, uh, ancient ancient engineering with the Sphinx and yeah. Great Pyramid, Gobekli Tepe. Rick, what was that? I said just how ancient that might be for the Sphinx. I've learned everything from 12,000 yeah. years to my, my personal favorite 36,000 years. <laughs> okay. So, but uh, I yeah, I'll work that. There was a Sphinx cult active along what is now the border between France and Germany 34,000 years ago. And they carved wooden examples of both Sphinx and Anthropophobia anthropomorphic figures with cat heads, vice versa from the Sphinx. Wow. I think a, a, <laughs> I, I think a so good thing for us to try to Yeah. Yeah, we can actually get a C fourteen date off carved wood. Okay. So since you know, you know, we were just talking about um, diffusion. You know, pe- you know, people have to uh, at some, sooner or later. You know, pe- as people are migrating around the world, uh, you know, they're at some point they're going to have to build a boat. Um, let's take a look at. You know what you're saying you know, the population of the earth was as you know we uh, start approaching the time when um, uh, God tells noah um, you know you need to build a ark okay I'm not sure what you're uh, wanting me to do here. Uh, yeah, God specifically it's like, it's said. Like, yeah, how, how many? Like, what, what was the Earth's population around this? Time? There's a lot of speculation about that. A billion and a uh, uh, a billion and a half people is a common estimate. I've heard figures as high as three and a half billion. I don't think we're ever really going to know, but it's it was big, uh, and it was big on all five continents, all five major continents. I, the, the world was was settled by people uh early on and and there was there was many people out here it, when people read the bible and they talk about adam and eve and only a few people they get the idea that the numbers were small 
the numbers were large. There was a lot of people alive, and there was a lot of people lost in the in the uh, cataclysm. Okay, so when the because we get closer to cataclysm, um, you know, most of us are thinking that okay, uh, it's raining, and that was basically <laughs> the cause of the flood. Um, you say you, that there was you, another event. Well, there, there's been a series of geologic events more than just this one cataclysm. The event that we're talking about presently, the cataclysm of 9,700 B.C., was primarily a, a water event, and it was major. People that read the Bible, they know what rain is, and they think rain was the major source of water. Nobody has ever really adequately explained what the fountains of the deep were, Mm -hmm. uh, but that was the major source of the water. The, the fountains of the deep, I'm going to skip a lot here, but the the earth is not, stand, uh, it's earth's axis has, has shifted about 22 degrees from the vertical, and that shouldn't be. Uh, something happened to the earth at some point in the past, and it's evidently have gone through several changes, but presently it's like 22 degrees out of position. There have been other uh, bits of information in ancient mythology. There's several that say that the earth rolled completely over. Uh, there are several uh, mythological accounts that say they could see something major in the skies. At any rate, something caused the, uh, the polar axis to shift, and it couldn't have been anything from within the earth. It had to be something from outside the earth. A shift like that would cause the water on the land to want to stay where it was. When the shift took place, the water, the oceans, would actually rise up out of their ocean basins and roll across continents. That's what the uh, fountains of the deep were. It was a gargantuan tsunami, larger than larger than the one we had in 2000. And four in the Indian Ocean, where we lost 240,000 people. It was much worse than that. And and its own momentum may have caused a second or maybe even a third surge. So we're talking a major, major, major thing here. And that's what the Bible is calling uh, the fountains of the deep. It's probably a good explanation. There's probably not anything in our language that could adequately describe it. It never happened before. <laughs> but well, the rain... Another phrase that is in there, but it only appears once, is the water from above and the waters from below. And that one right. has always been hard to come up with a really good reason. Got one? <laughs> well, the waters above, you have to ask the question, above what? Uh, in the atmosphere is a probably a good answer, and the waters below would be the waters that we have here on earth i don't know Where the answer to that but that would be my suspicion that the that the atmospheric water would be the waters above and the oceanic waters would be the waters below 
I think that there was a little more to it. Here's what I think. I think we had a very close call with one of Emmanuel Belikovsky's big comments. And it probably was the water that had been ejected from Mars. And uh, that close call was probably about 13,000 years ago. But the water that intercepted the Earth uh, came in as a huge wave, and it was a slush ball. So in addition to um, probably hitting in what was already the ocean and causing a tsunami, it also added a bit of momentum to the uh, rotation of the Earth and a big hole. It, it sent everything up into the atmosphere, always some of it back out of the stratosphere. Once it's here, it's here. <laughs> the water is a pretty right. stable substance. When when yeah. water gets here, it can evaporate, but it stays within the system. Uh, Correct. The water in the oceans today is probably the water that we had to deal with at the time of, if you want to use the word flood, I, I keep wanting to use the word cataclysm. But when people read their at, Bible... Right? Yeah, when you look at where the continental shelf is compared to where the water is now, there was a lot of water added to the system in the uh, water. This is a really complicated issue. The, the water, as we see it, it's difficult to, to study it because the earth has not been exactly as it, as it now is. We, we have a condition of rising and falling oceans, but we also have a condition that's harder to deal with called isostatic adjustment or isostasy. And, and that is that the levels of the earth change. Uh, it, the earth responds to pressure. Uh, the ice is a good example. When, when a great amount of ice accumulates on the surface of the earth, it creates a great amount of weight and that depresses the surface of the earth in the location where the ice is. The earth has to respond to that somehow, and so what it does is it bulges out in some other part of the world. That affects the water level and wherever that is. So it's very difficult to get a good grasp on how much water there is because we've got uh, competing factors to to measure it, and they don't always correspond. I, I think that the amount of water, the total amount of water on the Earth is probably pretty constant throughout. And, um, oh, here, here it is. Mike, you also wrote about there may have been a uh, planet between oh, yeah. Mars and Jupiter, that uh, that could be something like Rick's uh, slush ball. That you know, by the time it smashed into a planet and broke it up, and you it, know, the ice ball gets warmed uh, up. And yes, in in um, in trying to get to the bottom of things, there's so many conflicting bits of information that don't always line up. But the Earth was not the only planet 
that was adversely affected uh, by whatever solar object uh, caused the cataclysm. What I'm going to mention now is speculative. I can't prove this, but the, the, the planet Venus rotates in the opposite direction of the other planets. That shouldn't be. Likewise, astronomers have made the statement that there ought to be another planet between Mars and Jupiter, and there is not. But what we do have there is the asteroid belt. Um, people trying to get to the bottom of this have speculated that whatever object caused the Earth to shift in its axis, uh, on its axis and, and go through the cataclysm that it had to endure, that same object also caused whatever planet was between Mars and Jupiter to totally fly apart. The Earth nearly did. And it caused Venus to roll over and thereby rotate in the opposite direction. In other words, whatever solar object caused the cataclysm could have affected three planets uh, all at, more or less at the same time. Uh, speculative, interesting. Can I prove it? No. <laughs> but it happened. <laughs> we have a lot we can't prove. We, we know it happened, but we don't know why or how. <laughs> that was very interesting. So um, you, yeah, there's, it seems to be something accurate about the biblical science. Uh, you know, like you're talking about the astronomy, uh Tsunamis, you know, they may not have been using, they're using more the hyperbole literary devices that um, you wrote about in the early uh, part of your book, but you know, they're basically saying, uh, poetically saying something that we would um Look for a, a more concrete dis, uh, description in or a concrete term in our language uh, today. It, it is. It's hard to come up with. We we live in our own culture and we have our own language and our own way of looking at things. They did too, and not just people uh, written about in the Bible. But throughout the ancient world, they had their own language and culture, and they didn't necessarily use words and even numbers the way we do. And it's, it's hard to get a fix on things if we don't quite know what they're saying. You know, when we, we, we use numbers, we're looking pretty much at a quantity or a duration, whereas in the ancient world, both the Bible and in, in other places in the world, they weren't looking so much as a a quantity or a duration, but they were looking at a quality. They, they they may have been more interested in some other aspect. They wouldn't have lost sight of how long or how many something went on, but what kind may have been more important to them, and that may oftentimes be what they were actually telling us. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. In the recovery from yep. the cataclysm, we have several cases where there was 
I'm going to call it a rescue party sent out. In 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 Peru, we have Viracocha, and in Mexico, we have uh, uh, Kuklacan, and and we have uh, Quetzalcoatl as well. Always as a significant leader and a group of seven sages that went out. I'm going to say to assess the damage and try to help people recover. We look at that and we see there was eight people in all three of those cases, and we say it must have been the same party. I, I, I kind of doubt it. I think they would have been separate rescue parties. What it's telling us is not how many people were involved, but what sort of people. They were people that were qualified to help build the recovery. So they may not have had eight people. There may have been some other number. They were telling us that they were important people and they were qualified to help us with our recovery. Let me ask you a question. How many people were on the Ark of Noah? I'll tell you, the, the answer is There's eight. eight. There was eight. There was Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives, a leader and seven sages, if you want to use it. <laughs> Uh, the Bible is approaching it a little differently because it starts out with Noah, the flood, and uh, Viracocha, and so on. They came after. But you see what I'm saying? The orientation is the same. We have the same number of people in all four of those parties, and those four are not the only ones. There's a few more out in the Pacific where they come up with the same numbers. It's the importance yes. of what was going on that's being shared. Well, and I think it might may have something to do with how much knowledge the ancient people had about genetics. Could be. Minimum population to found a new colony. Mm-hmm. Could e- easily be, easily be. The world is an interesting place. If we could ever get to yeah. the bottom of all this, we wouldn't have any conference anymore. <laughs> if we had well, all the answers, we <laughs> To, to get back to, I guess, what I think is the center premise of your study is just how smart these ancient people actually were. They were very they, smart. Yeah, they were probably smarter by far than we are as, as an average, at least. Um, I, and, and you're exactly right. And, and I, I think that's part of the reason that we're having trouble working this out. I was taught in school, that probably you were too, that man, as we know him today, has been on the earth about 200,000 years, and that he came into being uh, as uh, descended from ancestors of apes, and that he began as a primitive hunter-gatherer, very simple life, and gradually improved his lot until he worked up to where he could accomplish significant things today. When we look at the archaeological record and see in the ancient world, in many places in the ancient world, there were things that just simply could not have been done by primitive people. They were done by highly educated and highly competent people. And that that flies in the face of the logic that man began as a simple hunter-gatherer. He was obviously well advanced at an early point. And to make, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. ruins of Baalbek. Baalbek, yeah, 1,600 tons of of rock that they could move for Pete's sake. We don't know how they could do that. Ancient man could do incredible things. He he was not primitive, at least not all of them. There may have been some primitives, but many people were highly advanced. And so what happens is when an archaeologist looks at something like that, for example, if he looks in, in Peru and he sees incredible things, and in his mind he knows that primitive man couldn't have done it, that means early man couldn't have done it, so he assigns a late date to the uh, archaeological site that he finds. When yeah. we we look at what other people have, have researched, uh, Arthur Brzezansky, for example, uh, researching in Peru, comes up with a date of 17,000 years for things that archaeologists want to assign uh, a date of maybe 1,000 years to. It doesn't match up. Right. And it's because and the orientation is different. It, it correlates it in three different ways. It's mm-hmm. not just single simple observation. Yeah, it's uh, mm-hmm. pretty convincing. But yes. that's <laughs> not the only site. I mean, there are Gobekli Tepe, 12,000, estimated 12,000 years old. You have mm-hmm. sites in India that are probably at least 9,000 years old, covered in water, but still standing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, an incredible feat of engineering. You have Adam's Bridge between Salon and India. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a causeway for overland travel across, well, basically, <laughs> yeah, the deep ocean, but the more, deep enough you can with his equipment. The, the more we learn about these things, the more we realize there's a lot more depth to our, our history than we realize. I remember when I was in college, I remember sitting in a classroom one time, and my archaeology teacher said he thought the, the New World, both the North and South American continents, had first been populated about 3,500 years ago. And there was a younger professor there sitting there smoking his pipe and, and, and nodding in agreement. And I'm a 19-year-old student wondering about this, and I say, that makes no sense whatsoever. Why are these two big continents empty until 3,500 years ago when the old yeah. world was heavily populated way before that? And what am I going to do? You know, I know nothing. I'm a 19-year-old kid. And here I'm sitting here questioning my teacher, who's a Ph.D. from Harvard, no less. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, he can't be right about that. <laughs> well, we're, was not. we're learning. <laughs> we're learning. We've, we've got a long way to go. That's <laughs> what <Well>, we're learning. <laughs> I agree. But, you know, that whole 200,000-year-ago origin or whatever you want to call it, uh, that's one of the genetic bottleneck points. 75,000 years ago, there was another one, uh, right. according to the DNA. Now, 7,500 years ago, that's that's not very long, but it kind of coincides with what we're talking about here. Um, the population of the world got down into the five digits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's That's phenomenal that we even came back from that. Really? We've got so much to look at and always fragmentary information and in some cases always questionable information. Our dating methods are not perfect and and we try to make perfect matches with dates that we don't know if are, are real accurate or not. And 
is it be, it becomes an increasingly difficult uh, thing to wade wade through. I think if we could make one basic uh, uh, we could get one bit of information to surface, and that would be was something pre-cataclysmic or post-cataclysmic. I think that would be a really good starting place for us because it would give us a line of demarcation that uh, we could we could work from. When we look at sites today, particularly these old ones, we don't always know whether they were immediate post-cataclysmic or whether they're pre-cataclysmic. I think it's an important bit of information that we need to try to unravel. Yes, well, and, and, and And Mike, you talk about with we many bible uh, readers think that the flood j- j- just covered all all the mountaintops and even though noah had engineering skills in if it, if making it a <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He he engineered a naval vessel, uh, but we don't even know if the, he lived near water. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, yeah. But but after the ark, uh, the, the the waters receded and the ark uh, came to rest, uh, whether at Mount Ararat or some other place. There were only eight survivors, and where did the knowledge of making these uh, pyramids out of stone with the uh, 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 sides of the pyramids perfectly aligned to the cardinal directions of the compass. It doesn't add up, does it? We we have so no. many sites in so many places scattered around the world which exhibit, among other things, solar orientations, very precise solar orientations, and they're quite old. If you try to build a case that there were only eight survivors from the cataclysm and that from them all of these megaliths were, were eventually built, you're going to have a hard time swallowing it. But remember, the Bible is a very special book. When it says everyone died, what it really means is everyone that the Bible is about died. The the Bible is a Jewish book, and it is talking about the lineage that led from Adam, if you want to take it there, on up to Jesus Christ, a, a specific lineage, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there were not other people on the world. I believe there were, but what's being destroyed was the lineage of Seth. In the in the Bible, the, the flood story is in Genesis 6 through 9, but if you read it carefully, Genesis 5 sets the stage uh, for the whole thing, and it's really talking about lineage. Uh, the lineage of Seth, uh, supposedly the third person born to Adam and Eve, it was his generation 
that will remain faithful for seven generations, a symbolic number, and eventually fell away, and that the judgment was on his lineage. If you look at the mythologies of ancient world, a lot of them lay the blame on the flood to men living outside of the will of God or their gods, as the case may be. It's a very, very common approach to it. The, the Bible is giving its perspective on the lineage that led up to Christ, the Jewish people. Other people are not included. When the Bible mentions other people, it's because they relate to the Jewish story somehow. So when it says everyone died, it's not saying everybody in the whole world died. It's saying everybody that was in that lineage died. By the same token, the other thing that people have a hard time with is that the, the mountains were covered to a depth of 15 cubits all across the world. When you look at the amount of water that that would have taken, if you're of a mind that the mountains at the time of the flood were at their present elevations, you're going to have a hard time explaining where all that water came from because Mount Everest is five yeah. miles high, 25,000 feet, and there's nowhere for the water to go. There's nowhere for it to subside to. It, it would it would still be there if, if it had actually been that deep. That's why well, I believe he, a tsunami is a better explanation because that's temporary. The water can slosh up out of its basins, roll up, and be 15 cubits higher than the highest mountains that existed up to the time of the flood and then subside and go back into their basins. If if you're willing to accept I'm sorry? I said maybe if you're willing to, to the whole earth. Um but I I do that as a lead in to did you do any reading or serious study of the epic of Gilgamesh? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh there's many accounts of a flood. There's between five and six hundred flood stories in the Bible, not in the Bible, in, in, in our history. Uh, all of them from what you call mythology. Mythology is is not a scary word. Mythology means it took place before writing. It had to be from oral tradition. The biblical story of the flood had its beginning that way, but when writing entered their culture, they wrote it down. I, I think that the Hebrew language came about about 1500 B.C., so uh, it would have been oral up to that point. Uh, one of 600 <laughs> flood stories that are around the Bible, and Gil, Gilgamesh is one of them, and it's a major one. Now, you you got to explain how uh, men could float in a box. <laughs> his, boat, yeah. his boat was... Uh, but he also had his friend Enki... Um, went to the went went to the underworld, if you will, right? And can't return, but he was able to convey a message to Gilgamesh about his mother. And Gilgamesh was seeking his his share of immortality because his mom was a immortal, uh, mm-hmm. and he he never did get it. But mm-hmm. Enki went went to the center of the earth as one of the interpretations of going to the underworld. And it describes exactly how he did it, but you can't return. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the 
the flood myth, if you will, is accompanied by a hollow earth myth in the same... I can't explain that. Uh, I I can't can't argue against either one of them being real. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's so much that we know did happen that we know the event was real when we read all these different accounts of it and they don't quite add up. Somewhere it has its answer in the fact that our language and culture was different. And uh, there was one flood, one, one worldwide flood, and it was it was disastrous, and a huge percentage of the world was destroyed. People had different ways of explaining it. Yeah. And there have been other and, events since then that weren't, weren't quite as cataclysmic, but probably right. similar circumstances. We had one in 536, someplace in the you know, A.D., you could even make a case that the Bronze Age came to an end because of some kind of cataclysmic event. If you oh, try sure. to attribute it, if you try to attribute it to warfare, it, it it's a good explanation, but it, I don't think it plays out very well. I have a feeling no. it was another solar event. Uh, there, yeah, there was something that didn't just interrupt the source of the metals necessary to make bronze. Um, it destroyed pretty much every sailing ship that existed. It did. It was bad, yes, exactly. We we live in such a calm time uh, as far as what's taking place in the skies that these things are hard for us to grasp. I mean, that there could have been a a giant asteroid or a solar flare or uh, a comet was destructive to the Earth We've never seen that in our lives, and it's difficult no, for us to think that. It yeah. Well, but we also had seen Godzilla's and you know aliens and every other thing come to destroy the planet. Um, <laughs> the audiences have been pretty much desensitized to what that actually means. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, for instance. For instance, in 1854, they had what they called the Carrington event, and it was a yes, solar right. flare on steroids. But uh, the only way it was actually discovered was it fried all the telegraph wires that pretty much existed on the Earth at the time, which yep. was great. Most of small United States, Canada, and England. But mm-hmm. it also it was also strong enough to kill three operators. Mm-hmm. Uh, give serious burns to others. But when you come in at a million and a half volts per meter, um, that's probably enough to generate a big charge. Yep. So we never know when there's going to be another one of those. And this, Every, this everybody is... End and we would never hear from each other again. Everybody that's researched this thing seems to always come to the conclusion that another disaster could be right around the corner. It just yeah. seems to be a universal conclusion. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not doing the chicken little thing. I'm not saying the sky is falling. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> uh, you know, 2039 is our next big shot at maybe getting hit by an asteroid, and I don't expect to live that long. So. <laughs> well, I'm 80 years old, so... <laughs> 
that if if one if one's going to catch us, it's it's if it's going to catch me, it's going to have to hurry. I yeah. don't have that many years left. <laughs> I, I just turned sixty eight recently, and and contacted contracted COVID on my birthday. How nice! Oh no! But, yeah, oh, I pretty geez. much got over that, and I'm just waiting for the next major malady to hit. You know, I'm all resilient well, we, too. Now we have two uh, variations of COVID, so maybe it'll be with us for a while. You know, we didn't have a conference a year ago because of COVID, so it's been two years since we've had one, and uh, and I'm pretty anxious to get up to this one. Two years is too long. <laughs> if I have to go up there and take a chance on catching a virus, I'll take my chances. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Nobody. I would love to. It's kind of looking like I'm going to be doing my presentation via Zoom meeting. But oh, really? Just because <laughs> and I bought a bar uh, two years ago, just right before, I guess we closed on it after we got back from that conference. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it didn't hit too long after we came back. <laughs> But I, well, I have done. A, I've got a presentation to make as long as we can make the knowledge. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Rick. We've spoken a little bit about Noah's engineering skills. Uh, it, uh, let's hear a, a little bit about Desoto and his voyage to. The, the new world. Uh, what is your unique perspective on the Spanish conquistadors? Oh, I'm glad you used the plural. <laughs> I'll give you uh, another example to go along with Hernando de Soto, and that is Juan Ponce de Leon. Both of them, before they came to North America, were rich beyond avarice, okay? They weren't coming for something that's very much more specific and highly valuable above gold. Not that they would turn down the gold, but they had something else in mind. And, and I'm pretty sure that they were both after the same thing, but I'm not going to speculate right now on what that was. Uh, of course, with Ponce de Leon, it was the... Uh, fountain of youth, but there is no explanation for why Hernando de Soto did what he did. However, I'm also going to bring into question some of the more accepted routes and, and time periods and coincidence of time to play um, that is generally accepted, because there have been artifacts found far out from any of those routes. And um, I'm pretty sure that Hernando de Soto and most of his survivors at that point in time were just uh, very close to where I live. And that some of the native artifacts from the same, I'm pretty sure the same time period, I haven't found a way to date it, depict pigs which were not native to not only this area, but to the Americas before Columbus. And then I'll go into uh, what other places DeSoto visited and how he did it and what he did and how, how he really pissed off everybody. 
um, up to the point where there was a large army raised against him. And that's in the Chronicles right there, large army, which would have required a great deal of communications and coordination with armaments and food and all the other vestiges that go with a military action. How long was DeSoto in the central part of the United States? Well, if by central you mean west of the Mississippi, he never did make he, it with Yeah, he but was kind of like that e- e- eastern, uh, like, it, you know, if you were mentioning Indiana, you know, it's kind of like Midwest. Uh, yeah. And he was seeking something specific, but like I said, he'd accept any treasure that became available. One of the treasures that did become available to him, uh, kind of a tribute of, hey, please don't burn down our village, was about 300 pounds of river pearls, uh, which most historians say, oh, well, they're just not all that valuable. They're not like oyster pearls. Uh, well, I beg your pardon, but some of them are far more valuable, especially the ones from a couple of specific, not just specific rivers, specific stretches of rivers. And one of those rivers is the Wabash. Um, and I'm convinced that that is probably the, the source of the pearls that they had, uh, partly because... Um, of the placement and the description of the the city where they got them and all the things that happened shortly after that, they were they. And oh, by the way, the fire that came in that village at the end of this battle with this large army killed 500 pigs. Hernando de Soto had brought 13 sows with him that we know of. It could have been more, but. We don't have a good number. Um, and at the end of his life, he had 750 hogs in a mere three and a half years. Somehow these don't add up to me. His men were starving, but the hogs were thriving, apparently. Hmm. Okay. And, it, yeah, the... Uh archaic people really you know, did, did a lot of decorations with uh, the freshwater pearls uh, from the Wabash River as well. And what you have uh, several important archaic uh, settlements on the Wabash too? Oh, sure. Yeah, but at the period of time that DeSoto was here, it would be late woodland, um, uh-huh. early historic late woodland. Uh, and, and, oh, by the way, this brings up another point. The same, and this was a queen of this village slash town slash city um, who gave him the pearls, but she also told him where they could go find more pearls and more treasure. And it was a mortuary mound at a village a few miles away, and the Spanish went there and they excavated it and they got more pearls and they got some silver, um, beaten silver, and they also got some crosses, 
those were cross wait wait crosses. Yes, they dug up Christian crosses as the first Spanish to visit North America. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. That's my sidebar. And then when they, they that wasn't enough to appease them, so they went back and kidnapped her. Okay, so there there were transatlantic crossings during Christian times, is what you're saying? Yes, and before the Spanish got here. So who but, who, yes, who were they? Pardon. Who, who, who were they other than St. Brendan and or the Romans? And or the Welsh. Or ta- and yeah, or the other Welsh. Irish, Brendan. And or this, uh, some of the Scandinavians. Of course, this is post-Viking. Um, but let's go there for a minute. Um, Eric the Red was a, a an Asgard slash Norse god slash you know, hard, hardcore. But his son, Leif Erikson, was a converted Christian thanks to the king of Norway. By the way, by this time, Eric was already in Greenland. And Leif was sent as a liaison as a king of, from the king of Norway to assess the level of Christianity being practiced because the tithes were too low. And the same same thing happened 300 years later. But anyway, while life was there visiting, slash negotiating, slash whatever he was doing, um, his brother came back from North America, came back from Markland, and told him all these tales. And he said, here, hey, let me borrow your boat. And off he went, and Leif Erikson went to North America. He was not the first Norse to get to North America, but he's the only one recognized by history today. Now, having said that, there was a 952 or so Norse penny found in a mound in the state of Maine. So, no, he wasn't the first. Anyway, yeah, there were others, other Christian cultures who made it to North America before Columbus, and this is a problem for the sovereignty laws regarding U.S. sovereignty and Canadian sovereignty and Mexican sovereignty. So, okay, so and well, and you and Lee Pennington and Ross Broadstock have done several shows recently looking at the Roman coins found in the Ohio River Valley, you know, those were some uh, fascinating shows. Please publish some articles. Yes, indeed. Um, there, there are other tie-ins that follow up with those coins on strange out-of-place artifacts that ended up in the same place as the coins for a while. Yeah, and uh, 
you know, one of our favorite authors, Caleb Atwater, uh, covered <clears throat> uh, mentioned them uh, being found in a cave near Nashville. Yes, indeed. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he's looked at you know pretty highly as um, a reputable antiquarian. Uh, that seems like a outrageous claim, but you can find it in his 1820 book. Yes. And and if you want to do a little more research, you'll find that he was uh, reporting for the Antiquarian Society, which had been established in 1812 in Boston uh, by a, a friend of uh, Paul Revere's and John, John Adams, et cetera, uh, anyway, um, it was almost all the initial members of the Antiquarian Society were Freemasons, and that remained in effect until this day. However, the Antiquarian Society is no longer in the business of collecting artifacts. They're only in the business of collecting printed matters, which is weird. Okay, um, Mike, uh, Rick brought up you know, some interesting points about what interests so many of us is you know, like these out-of-place artifacts like uh, uh, in what, like the 1540s, DeSoto is uh, discovering... Christian crosses in native mounds. Um, so, you know, there were uh, Christian cultures coming to North America before DeSoto. Uh, and it makes a uh, tie-in with your uh, restarting Genesis. Um the since some you know may get the impression that uh the world was you know largely destroyed by this flood uh, and like all these enigmatic uh, structures like this things you know were built afterwards. Uh, maybe we should look at it as uh, the Sphinx pyramids, maybe the you know, Bosnian pyramid were built prior to the flood. That's a possibility. Um, we're hearing better information coming out of Bosnia. The first time I had a heard some good information about Bosnia. Sam Osmanovic, who is investigating it, had found a single leaf, and they did a carbon date on it, and it came up 29,000 years. Since then, there have been more carbon dates, and they're not quite as old as that, 
but we're getting better and better information from more and more places around the world as time goes on. We're a long way from having it figured out, but I think it's safe to say that when the cataclysm occurred, it did wipe out a major portion of humanity, half of it, maybe more, but there's been a long time for recovery. So when we find things like DeSoto uh, or or uh, uh, more recent groups, the Vikings and so on, there's a long time in between those. I think there has been an exchange between the new and old worlds for the whole time. And when we find early Christian material that predate DeSoto, I don't think we should be surprised at that. Uh, I think it's just part of our sequence of of recovery and development. There have been people coming and going for thousands of years. And, you know, we've covered that topic numerous times. Probably the Denisovans might Mm -hmm. be, you know, one of the best examples that is... uh, coming to light now. There a lot is being learned about them. And it's it's really interesting when when Neanderthals were the subject of study, they had many skeletal remains, a lot of them the uh didn't I can I can't pronounce it, Denisovans or Denisovans or something. They yeah. found a a tooth and a single finger bone in a cave in Russia and yet the research into them is going forward at a very rapid rate because of DNA. They didn't have that when they were trying to figure out what the deal was with, with Neanderthals. So we're progressing. You know, I don't I don't know where that's going to lead, but we're learning more about the Denisovans today than we did about the Neanderthals 75 years ago. It, it's good that, that science has progressed. And it's answering questions. The funny thing is, at least in my own experience, every time I get an answer to a question, I end up with two more questions. <laughs> so I don't know if I've gained ground. <laughs> yep, usually far more questions emerge. Um, so just just to be clear, most, uh, pretty much all of your biblical subject matter is Old Testament stuff. Yes. Did you? And I haven't read your work. I'm very sorry. Um, did you also go into the Indian, East Indian formation tales? I'm not exactly sure what you're. Uh, are you talking about Indian remains here in this country? No, no, East Indian Mahatmaraba. Not too much. I haven't gotten into that very much. Okay. I was just curious because it, it has – you were talking about flying. Um, that, that's where that came from, yes. Yeah, that the, those are the ones that there's some thought that maybe they could fly. And, and maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But that is where that came from. It, well, well, and, uh, sorry, go, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, Rick. Uh, go, uh, go ahead. My question could wait. Well, it, it might also be um, the origins, uh, at least of ideas like uh, 
for instance, gospel songs, uh, the city on high, the city in the sky, all, you know, the gates of heaven, all those things that have allusions in the Bible, both old and new, but they don't call it a city much, except that there are streets that's paved with gold. Yeah, you're you're looking at the 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 way the Bible describes the New Jerusalem. Um, the New Jerusalem is not really intended to be a literal city. It's a spiritual city. It's the Bible's way of drawing a picture for people to show how great uh, the biblical writers were showing how great salvation is to man. They talk about pearls that are big enough to be a door on a city gate. Well, that would take a mighty big oyster. You know, but they're not talking about how big the pearl was. They're talking about how significant the entrance into the presence of God is. That 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 kind of stuff is the orientation of the Bible. When we we read that, and we try to think that it was a literal city, we come up with all kinds of stuff that just don't make sense. Pearls didn't get that big, you know. Uh, right. When we realize that they're giving you a spiritual explanation, it does make sense. The everything from movie makers um, to particularly sci-fi movie makers to uh, science fiction writers and some just I don't know wild fiction writers talking mm-hmm. about floating flying cities and Star Wars has its own version of floating cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, it's, I, I won't say it's ubiquitous, but it's pretty pervasive in entertainment of how that one has come about. And there mm-hmm. are, then there's also the allegory that any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic to the uninitiated. Right. So, what could happen if, for instance, your priesthood could tell you what was happening in a city 10 miles away as it was happening. Would you think that they were magical, that they had, uh, you know, this super strong intuition or what was going on there? Well, you're getting into a strictly theological area now. I think that God does communicate with man, but he does it in a way that man can understand. He, God's between a rock and a hard place. If he wants to reveal himself to man or communicate with man, he's got to do it in such a way that the hearer is going to understand it. Well, since that's been going on for thousands of years, our cultures have changed, and the way we need to hear things today may not be the way it was in the past. And it's hard for us to to make sense out of some of it. And little by little, things are unraveling, and we're we're gaining ground, but we have a long way to go. Oh, no doubt on that one. <laughs> but we don't have to get into that right now. Um, You're right. So, Mark, what do you got in mind for the rest of this show? Um, let's see, there... Since we have spoken about heavenly cities, um, Mike uh, does talk about 
Cappadocia and underground cities. We can get into that. Uh, you know, I can always dovetail into um, you know, the hollow earth theory. If you want to venture into that, talk about anything else uh, related to the conference. Sure. Bitcoin. Well, as far as the conference, as far as the conference is concerned, for for your listeners, there's going to be a wide variety of interests there. Um, Rick knows a lot of things about a lot of things, but the majority of the speakers there are pretty focused on one thing. the The group that sponsors this conference had its beginnings with a family that was interested in the copper mines that were found in the Upper Peninsula going back 5,000 years maybe. And there's like 5,000 of them. Probably it was the source of copper that fueled the the Bronze Age, the Great Bronze Age. But from there it spread out. And when someone attends this conference, they're going to hear speakers speaking on a wide variety of subjects. You know, having a guy talking about uh, the pigs of DeSoto and another guy talking about the cataclysm of 9,700 B.C., you're talking about two radically different subjects. And that's the way this conference is. There are so many areas of interest, most of which there's a lot of questions about and, and a shortage of answers. We have a lot of fun because we get exposed to a lot of people who have found things out but still don't have all the answers. It's a great weekend. <laughs> well, uh, Ron uh, uh, Rademacher. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. I was just say, you know, uh, Ron uh, Rademacher has uh, spoken about the um, oh, that that stone with the hieroglyphs on it. Um. Yeah, that's been a uh, captivating subject, and, and he's written uh, some more articles in Ancient American Magazine about the Macintosh Stone. Um, yeah, that that's uh, been a topic discussed in the past, but it does make you think about many of the other speakers who do discuss diffusionism and that stone might be an example of it. I, you know, the, it almost looks like, uh, someone used a Dremel to cut the hieroglyphs into this, um, small pebble. What, uh, what language is that? You know, what do the symbols mean? Those are always good questions. They, they're always great questions. They're always difficult to answer. And we have to be very careful when we're researching like uh, anything like this because when we have a real artifact, most of the time traditional archaeology rejects it because it was found in a farmer's field or in a cave or something. Somebody picked it up and took it home and said, hey, what about this? Once it's been moved, archaeology automatically rejects it. They say it's not in place. It's not in situ, they say. They want artifacts found in place. And once you pick it up, it can never be 
put back again to their satisfaction. So we have a huge number of artifacts that obviously have a really significant meaning when we can look at them and say, let's research this, and archaeology wants nothing to do with it because it's no longer in place. We have to get beyond that. There, there's too many there's too many finds that have been made by farmers plowing the fields. Always these things are considered by archaeology to be fakes. You know, these stones they find in, in Michigan, there's, there's over 3,000 of them. They're all over lower Michigan. They're all in farmers' fields, and archaeologists say they're all fakes. Who in a right mind is going to take 3,000 stones and put them in places that are highly unlikely to be ever found for what purpose? Why? There's no reason for that. The, these stones are real, and we have to get past the idea that once an object has been picked up off the ground, it's no longer useful for our study. There's a lot that's very useful for our study. Well, it is, it's very useful for our study, but in order to convince the archaeologists, it has, still has to be in situ in, and in such a way that they can prove it's in situ. That's mm-hmm. the only way they'll be with any of this stuff. Uh, they uh, granted, they, they, they declare everything. The crowd, but that's the way it is. It is, and it's unfortunate. And to make it worse, we have had fakes. There have been uh, a number of different fakes, and oh, yeah. and one of the speakers has, uh, Scott Walter, has found some of them, and he identifies them as fake. We have to proceed cautiously, but we have to. Uh, proceed realistically as well. Some things can have been faked, but there's an awful lot out there that's real and that's significant and that has an important place in history that's not been given a fair shake. Yeah, uh, you could go to the same arguments or uh, same situation, not arguments, on the Ica stones mm-hmm. or tablets that were found in western France. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Uh, Burroughs Cave, yeah. Michigan tablets. Uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of stuff. My favorite, my favorite of all of them, though, is the Grave Creek tablet—a little one-inch, one and a half-inch diameter, kind of overlooking thing with <laughs> some writing of some kind, and uh, what I believe is a tiny map. Um, and mm-hmm. it's found under the hole of the person buried in the upper tomb in Grave Creek Mount. Yep. But what's anyway, interesting and, what's interesting and then, to course, me is computer, and all we have now is a, a couple of bad copies. Yep. <laughs> but still on display down at the museum. Well one of the copies is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, Rick, what are some n- new directions that um, or alternative history gr- group is taking. What, where do you see us uh, going? What you know? What are some new trends? Oh, new trends! A couple of really important new trends. One of them is that the USGS lidar images have been added to Google Maps. If you know how to get to them, I haven't figured that mm-hmm. out. Um, another one is that uh, the 
the gravitational, I don't know if you know about it, but Gravity A, Gravity B, NASA has a pair of satellites that measures gravitational field from orbit. And they're actually tethered together. And and even with the, at one point they had 75% data error, and they're still gleaning findings from all that, supposedly. Anyway, that map is going to be available as well, and you're able to overlay them. So it's kind mm-hmm. of cool. Is it a new it, tool? It really is. Oh, my God, it is for sure. I think that things are progressing at a more rapid rate than we're, we really think. I I remember when I went to Gebekli Tepe and I looked at that, the uh, archaeologist, Klaus Schmidt, had been working there. I think at the time it was, he'd been there 17 years. He's deceased now. And he was not somebody who was big on archaeoastronomy. He was a traditional archaeologist. But what I see is that things are progressing at a pretty rapid clip. When I, when I was in college, anthropology was divided into four areas of study, ethnology, uh, physical anthropology, archaeology, and uh, linguistics. Now they have a field for archaeoastronomy. That's a, a fifth field that's been added 60, in the last 60 years since I was in college. But it's enabling us to learn things more quickly. When I looked at the site in Gobekli Tepe, I remember thinking, my gosh, he's been here 17 years. I think this could have been done in four years. Not anymore. There's so many new new techniques, not just archaeoastronomy, but LIDAR technology and ground penetrating radar and the ability to study pollens that have been in, in things in people's clothing and in cups and things. That was never mm-hmm. possible in the 60s when I was in college. They're, they're learning a great deal. Hmm? They're learning a great never... deal more, but it's it's slower. <laughs> it, it's slowed yeah. way down. It took 17 years, but it, they've learned more than they would have back in the 60s. Yeah. Um, you were li- listing the new fields, new specialties. Uh, Indiana University has one. It's actually 15 years old now. Uh, it's a very specific specialty of underwater archaeology. Yes. Uh, we're, in the mid- wow. we're in the middle of the quest. You know, uh, mm-hmm. but they're doing that's, that's, been a, that's been a difficult one because so much uh, marine archaeology has really been shipwreck salvage, and there's so much more that needs to be done. There's so many places oh, yeah. where there's known structures that are underwater since the water levels have, have risen, or the uh, some land has sunk. One of the two cause these places to be submerged valuable sites that need desperately to be studied and people are figuring out ways to do it now. It's slower and it's expensive, but the information is huge. Well, it depends on the depth, too. Like, for instance, one off the western tip of Cuba, which they say is a half mile deep, that one's going to be rather difficult. But you get off the coast of India, where the water is 20 feet, 40 feet deep, you can use a uh, remote piloted bot to do most of that. Or you can dive it. Although I don't really want to dive those waters with all the other critters that live there. <laughs> At least they're finding ways to do it. We we are yeah. learning more than we did. 
and I think it's accumulating more rapidly. And, and I think it's good news because what I see happening is little by little, we are finding traditional archaeologists, they're beginning to say, hold on here, there's more to this than, than what we're willing to accept. I think we better take another look at some of this stuff. I, I, yeah. I don't think the day will ever come when archaeologists would say, look, we were wrong. You guys were right. But I think the day will come when they'll claim it as their own discovery. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, the only and, way it can work. Yep. <laughs> you almost never hear them say, I don't know. <laughs> if you've got a PhD, you're expected to come up with the goods. <laughs> yes. And, Especially and, make sure you frame it that way. <laughs> Oh my! Well, I and go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say I have so much fun because I'm 80 years old, and if I'm wrong, it's all right. I can be wrong, <laughs> but but at this age, I can make my own interpretations and make my own decisions and be happy with them and go on. And if you're 20 years old and you're still a graduate student in college trying to get somewhere, you're, you're going to be looked on pretty seriously, and you've got you to come up with the right answers. I can be wrong because I'm 80 years old, but they can't do that because they're only 20. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and it has to be trained in the way that the professor likes or whoever your sponsor is. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if you ever knew the work of Gunnar Thompson. Did you ever communicate with Gunnar? I, I never I did. Had, I read it. I had one I brief uh, uh, call with him. Yeah, he was a great guy. Well, yeah, we had, we had a. Well, he and I had a weekend together up in Nova Scotia, Halifax, um, and I actually conducted a, an interview with him while we were in the car, lost in Halifax, because he couldn't navigate while I was driving. I couldn't navigate while I was driving. But we had somebody else producing back in the state, so we were communicating by cell phone, happily lost in Halifax, talking about everything that he'd ever investigated. The real point there is we had a lot of fun doing it. Now, mm -hmm. the lead-up to center is that when he was uh, a graduate student, in, in, I'm sorry, in archaeology, he made an observation that Cahokia must have housed something in excess of 50,000 people. He was thoroughly trounced out of his program. He went mm -hmm. down to PhD instead. Uh, now they're saying, oh, wow, probably 120,000 people lived here. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they didn't disappear all at once. It wasn't that drastic, but the place did rot away eventually. Uh, mm -hmm. And it wasn't because of it was, it was already very much in decline before the Spaniards brought that, or whoever brought that. Mm -hmm. um, and it might, might have been the Chinese. But anyway, um, he, he had to change majors because of an observation he made. And it was a thoroughly yeah. thought-out, well-reasoned observation that cost him their career. <laughs> it... Uh... He got a Ph.D. in a different field, but he never lost interest in archaeology, and he's written some wonderful books. And since he 
is no long was no longer a member of the old paradigm, he was able to publish what his findings were. And if nobody liked it, that was tough because he couldn't lose his career over it. <laughs> right. It already happened. But he was in somebody's shed for a long time. I, I'm very sorry to have lost Gunner. He was, as you so aptly observed, very uh, eclectic in his research. But he was also mm-hmm. very thorough. Mm-hmm. He was. He was a major contributor. And I believe he presented at uh, AAPS once or twice from his home, traveled there Hmm. from his home in Seattle, Washington. Okay. I I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it was back when it was in Big... No, it was in Marquette. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's... It's been a very long and successful run for AAPS, despite a major uh, interruption last year. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're in hopes that people are going to turn out this year. People are not so afraid of this Delta variant of the uh, virus this year. Uh, people are going about their business and doing what they want to do, and I I think we're going to have a successful conference, and uh, and we're all going to be well. <laughs> all going to be well, and I'm not staying away because of the virus. I'm staying away because of income, but um, uh-huh. because I can stay here and take care of the bar. Uh-huh. But okay. Anyway, um, we'll I'll, I'll figure out a way to use technology. We'll use some of those ancient methods of communication and make sure everybody's on the same page of the presentation. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, and Jay Wakefield is one of the presenters. Uh, he's written a number of really uh, interesting articles on um, ancient navigation, which is more recent than Noah's Ark, but it still ties in with. Uh, I don't know, it's just you know, just part of the latest uh, the. Yeah, the maritime has, legacy that we've been speaking about tonight. He has a collection, and he's written articles on individual ones. He has what I think I would call axe heads that are actually maps, mm-hmm. and these yeah. things are gorgeous. They're they're absolutely wonderful. He'll be speaking on uh, some aspect of the Beaker people, I think, at this particular conference. He always gives a wonderful message. You always come away learning something. Yeah, yeah and. It, it, yeah, the Beaker people, um, according to some researchers, uh, built Stonehenge, or you know, one of the later stages of Stonehenge. So, uh, the axes that he's uh, incorporated in the photos of his articles are, you know, really. Uh, fascinating. You you wonder what all the uh, artwork on them means, and as you read the article, you understand that uh, he, he's interpreting them as uh, a uh, start and stop uh, places on maps. Mm-hmm. 
He does. He well, he has good arguments for it. He he studied them very thoroughly. He doesn't know everything about them. He'll tell you that straight up. But he's learned a great deal, and it's very interesting. It's a wonderful collection. I hope he brings it along so people can see it. Well, and it also correlates with other uh, information about the Bell Beaker people, and that, in in my view, the most important part is that they populated just almost every island in the Mediterranean and many off of the western coast. Um, mm-hmm. They were very far spread. They were prolific sailors. Mm-hmm. Yep, they they were they were widely spread. He he has given uh, wonderful talks on a lot of different things and he'll be a major contributor to this conference. Anybody that's thinking of going, go. I remember the first time I went to a conference like this, it wasn't this one. I went to, it was one in Sedona, Arizona. And I was a little bit new to this alternative thinking. I, I had been reading about it for many years and I had more questions than answers, but I wasn't sure I belonged. I thought, do I really know enough to go to this thing? And I, I went there, and I learned a great deal, and I was very comfortable. And if uh, any of your listeners are thinking of going, they'll have a wonderful time. The food is good. The talks are good. They'll learn a great deal. They'll have a lot of their questions answered, and they'll go home with more questions than they came with. <laughs> uh, my only regret is that I won't be there to sing a song on the whatever they call that entertainment night, but... Maybe next time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Any, any closing remarks, Mark? Um, hey, do, do you have a new article in the upcoming Ancient American? I do not. I, I Are you working on it? Uh, do you have something you know, you're working on in your... Actually, I do have a couple of things I'm working on. I'm working on maybe doing a new podcast on a regular basis. Um, Ooh. And uh, Finally, still, is it gonna still be working the possibility of another media outlet, but we'll see. Uh, is this going to be uh, another Oopa Loopa Cafe? It'll be it'll have many similarities, but no, it won't be the Upalupa Cafe. Okay, is Brenda uh, going to um, maybe, maybe on rare occasions she'll participate, but she won't yeah, be mounting horns very soon. Okay, well she 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 did a uh, really good job uh, discussing the. The uh, armed services project that the Upalupa Cafe was uh, working on what, about eight years ago. Uh, yeah, it was. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Uh, she she does her own. She got a Facebook uh, live Facebook thing about every day for the bar. Talk, talks about her mm-hmm. menu and all the stuff that's going on. She's developed herself as a media presence in her own right, and uh, I'm not going to try to take that. No, away she's from a her. She, she's a professional photographer too. Yep, and yeah, that too. Bar owner, 
um, restaurant cook. She's got way too many irons in the fire right now. <laughs> Common ailment. <laughs> yes, and grandkids. We've got 21 grandkids. 22nd one's on the oh way, my. I think. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's, you talk okay. about a full-time job now, I'm telling you. All right, and, and um, you know, we have about two minutes left. Uh, Mike, do you, do you want to plug your uh, book and any other well, projects you want to talk about? Sure. I uh, My book, Restarting Genesis, is available. I'll have it at the conference. It is a Christian book, uh, although a lot of what we've been discussing here tonight from an archaeological and geological standpoint is in the section on the, the flood in the ark. I have another book that's about to come out. Maybe it'll even be out by the time the conference comes. It's very close. It's uh, called Restarting Exodus. Uh, we'll, I'll have it if it's there. And I have other projects in the work. Uh, I, I, you know, we're talking about several different people here. When I go to the conference, I'll be addressing people that think outside the box. They very clearly think outside the box, and they're looking for answers to the historical uh, side of issues. The book Restarting Genesis is written for a Christian audience who's thinking outside the box and never thought about the flood the way uh, that I think it really was. And I don't know if you remember it, but I had sent you a copy of a partially written Bible study that I had sent you. That is written Mm -hmm. for Christian people that have never thought about thinking outside the box. uh, And I want to try to get them to think outside the box. (laughs) So we approach some of these issues from different standpoints because there's different people uh, thinking about different aspects of it, and they approach it from different ways. Okay. Sounds great. So, um, yeah. So, look for uh, the Grays of the Golden Bear. You know Rick's famous book and Restarting Genesis. uh, Mike's uh, recently published book, and looking forward to reading Restarting Exodus. And if you want to know more about the conference, go to aapscopper.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. And thanks, Barbara. We'll see you tomorrow.